I'm so excited to be here. We have been working on this surprise for a while, and I cannot believe we did it. We held it together. Um, so it's such an honor for me to be here preaching um, to all the moms today. Um, but don't worry, if you're not a mom, it's still going to apply to you. If you're not a mom yet, or if you're a man, you'll never be a mom. This will still, this should still work for you. Um, first of all, I wanted to make you aware of my very, very impressive speaking credentials. First of all, so you can be excited for what to look forward to. You're not ready for this. I was a fourth, fifth, and sixth grade 4-H public speaking champion. In Meigs County. It's very, it's very impressive, I know. Don't be intimidated. Um, and I just wanted to paint a picture of what I was like in that sixth grade section. Um, so that you can properly hear the stories I'm going to tell you in the message. So you can imagine me. I feel like I've turned out, turned out pretty well, but it, it was a different me back then. So in fifth grade, I desperately wanted a perm because my sister April had a perm. And she had the best, like her hair took to perms so well. And so I think like we got like the instructions from your hairstylist, like of what she did. And it turned out okay. It was not as pretty as April's, but it was okay. Um, the only problem was that it just kept lasting. Like it just wouldn't go away. So that was in fifth grade. Here we are in sixth grade. And I'm like, mom, I'm ready to have my hair back. And so we consult a couple people, and Melissa Barlow, she was in the first service, I told her, told us we could do an at-home straightening perm. I think that's who we got that information from. And we're like, oh, no problem. So we buy the supplies, and we do our in-home straightening thing at mom and dad's bathroom. And everything's great. My hair is back. Everything's great. And then a few days later, I'm in class, and I'm just like, and I just feel something funny. And I'm like getting people to look at it. Nobody can see anything. I'm like, it just feels weird. No, we don't see anything. Okay. Well, a few weeks later, we begin to discover what that was. So apparently there's some extra rules other than just rub this stuff in your hair. Everything's going to be great. And all the hair in this section had just totally broken off. So when it was short, you couldn't really see it. But it began to grow. And so I had this thing happening, and um, it was so bad, they, they started calling me rooster at school, okay? And so I would take, like, pomade in the mornings, like, in scoops, and, like, get in the mirror, like, really aggressively. So it wasn't this anymore. It was just one big circle of grease. So I was really cool. And that's just, I just want you to keep her in mind as we go through this message and have compassion on me. I haven't done this very many times. So just think of her. She's the one. She's doing a great job. Um, but now that we're acquainted with what I was like, and we'll return to that, um, I'll fill you in on what I'm doing now. My husband Tyler and I from California like 36 hours ago. <laughs> Friday. Um, mom doesn't know. I've been, I've been stockpiling pictures to keep her believing I was in Reading. The whole family was. 
Um, but uh, we just got back. We're so happy to be back in Tennessee. Cheese dip, you guys, that's not a thing in California. Imagine it. Take a moment of silence. Cheese dip. I had it yesterday. I was so happy. Um, but we've been in uh, California at school at Bethel Church for the past nine months. It has been the best experience of our lives by far. And the whole first year of school is all based on identity. So it's a leadership school and they're sending people out. But the first year, the whole entire year is around the theme of identity because they believe it the most important thing a leader can know is who they are. So they can feel comfortable to be exactly who God says they are. They can be comfortable in their own skin. They don't have to compare themselves to other leaders. And when you know who God says you are, you can also let other people be who he says they are. And we can all just soar together, but we don't look exactly the same. We make a completer, more complete picture of God when we're all doing exactly what he called us to do. So any guesses on what I'm going to talk about today? Identity. (laughs) So my favorite sermon that I've ever heard on identity was a whopping 13 minutes long. And it is something I reference all the time. Uh, The speaker's name was Wendy Backlund. And she was talking about how there was a season in her life where she felt like the most in love with God she'd ever been. But no matter how hard she tried, she just kept not measuring up. Like she kept trying to change herself, change her behavior, and it just wasn't working. And she asked the Lord, like, do I not love you enough? You know, am I, am I not serving you enough? And he's like, oh, that's none of it. I have your whole heart. We just have to work on renewing your mind. It's a different part of salvation of sanctification and so God started having her speak declarations over herself and one of the things he asked her to say was very shocking to her because it did not sound like the truth so he said Wendy I want you to start saying I am an author and she was like God isn't that a lie I have not written any books I haven't attempted it's it's not even a goal of mine to to write books Uh, Why would I say I'm an author? And God responded to her and said, Is an apple tree still an apple tree before it grows apples? And even further, is an apple tree still an apple tree if it dies and it never made one apple? The answer to that is yes, and it's pretty obvious. Because an apple tree does not get its identity from performing and making apples. It gets its identity from what it was created to be, not what it does. And just like the apple tree, our identity, the true version of us, the true identity, doesn't come from what we do, but what we were created to be. But as humans, we so often and most often create our identity based off of how well we perform from our behavior, if we succeed or don't. And these beliefs about ourselves shape our entire lives. And on a smaller scale, they shape our every second of every day. So it's pretty important to know what you believe about you. But we need to know that ahead of time because as humans, like we said, we're prone to, use, to shaping our identity based off of what we do. And when we do that, our identities become slaves to our emotions and our behavior. They're changing all the time. If I 
woke up early that day and ate a healthy breakfast and did my devotions and paid for someone's Starbucks in front of me um, and was patient with someone, then I am a God's beloved child. And then if I was impatient and I woke up late and I'm in a hurry all day and stressed out, then I'm not worth very much. So it's really important to know who God says I am if I'm going to know who I really am all the time. So we're going to start the journey this morning of finding out what God thinks about you. And if you're worried about that and you're like, I don't want to know what God thinks about me, like he knows me very well and I'm not interested in hearing this, spoiler alert for everyone, if you have Jesus, God thinks really good things about you. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. I think we can all agree Jesus looks really good. So don't be nervous. It's all good stuff. Um, and I'm going to just read a few things that God has to say about you in the Bible. Ephesians 2.10 says, We have become his poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny he's given each of us, for we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one. Even before we were born, God planned in advance our destiny and the good works we would do to fulfill it. So that sounds like we are destiny fulfillers by nature. We are joined to Jesus. And God planned we're going to do good things. Second Corinthians 5 says we're entirely new people. Genesis 1 says we're made in the image of God, reflecting his nature. John 15 says we're intimate and cherished friends of God. Jeremiah 29, 11 says we're designed for a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 13 says we're destined to find God if we search for him with our hearts. Philippians 4 says we can do all things through Christ. Isaiah 61 says the spirit of God is upon us and has anointed us. So according to the word of God, you guys are all pretty great things. And if we were created to be these things, then how hard can it be? It's so important to familiarize ourselves with what God says about us. And this is such a general thing. We're reading what the word says, which is such a steady place. But the Lord is a personal God and he has a unlimited amount of things to say about you good things so many personal things he wants to speak to you if you let him and we cannot afford to have a single thought about ourselves that God does not have about us because if we're thinking something God is not thinking then we are believing a lie and if we aren't careful like that apple tree metaphor we begin making declarations over ourselves based on the fruit we don't see Instead of the fruit, we are destined to grow. So the other side of identity, we've got going to God, our source, him speaking over us, the truest voice. And the other part of it is each other. We need each other. So in modern culture right now, independence is really valued. It is everything to our culture. But God designed us for interdependence. He designed us to need each other. We are literally designed to hear our identity spoken over us by the people around us. Even Jesus was affirmed in the Bible by God. You see him in the in getting baptized and God comes out from heaven, his voice, and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I'm not trying to argue the point that Jesus needed affirmation. I'll leave that to someone doing more study. But that Jesus knew he was modeling a life that we would all follow. And he knew we needed it. We needed to hear what our father thought about us. 
So think about it. This even goes down to little things like when you're little and you have a hunch that you're good at something, and when you're older too, and you think, maybe I'm going to be good at this, but it's not real until someone else acknowledges it. And then you're like, oh, wait, I'm good at this? Nothing has changed about your ability. Just someone else spoke it. So this brings us back to sixth grade Kennedy. Remember her. Like this. Um, and we were, um, this is the story of how I first found out that I might have a life involving singing in sixth grade. And um, our choir, I was in choir at Meg's Middle. And our choir was putting on um, a recital of a Christmas carol. And they were doing auditions for the solos. And I think the only female part was Miss Cratchit, and all the girls were auditioning for that. Um, we were allowed to sing male parts, but we all wanted to play the girl. So we all did it, and I auditioned, and it didn't go very well. But somehow, and I'm really impressed by younger me doing this, because I don't know if older me would. I want to. When they called for the lead role, they were like, does anyone want to audition? And I said, I'll do it, even though I had done horrible on the other one. So I auditioned. I didn't know how it went. And later that week, this is, this is a good context for the story. I was describing this to Tyler and some of our friends. So do you guys remember, they might still do this. This sounds crazy to me now. When they used to do dental work at school for free. Okay, that's awesome because dental, dentist is expensive, okay? But they used to, your parents would just sign a paper. And then in school... They call your name on the intercom. You go to a room with two strangers, and then they work on your teeth and without any supervision of anybody who knows. That sounds insane to me. I cannot imagine us doing that in the modern world. But that's what was happening to me. I was getting my sealants. And um, so they called me back. So I was in the back room with these two people. And the way that they do sealants is they have these plastic um, things uh -uh, oh, the whole time. So I'm laying there in all my glory with, with my teeth open. And um, the, a voice comes over the intercom. And it's like, hello, everyone. This is Mr. Harris, the choir director. And I'm going to announce who got the solos for the Christmas recital. So they go through all the parts and no sign of my name. And they get to the very last one. And they're like, and the part of Scrooge will be played by. And remember, I was a lowly sixth grader with hair growing out of the back of my head. Kennedy Goins. And I was like, <gasps> and they were like, oh, are you okay? I'm like, <laughs> so that was my really glamorous way. The first person someone told me, the first time someone told me I was good at singing. And my parents go on record saying that coming to that recital was the first time they ever had a clue. Like it was just not obvious. I don't know. I don't really know how that happened, but I was 12, I think, or 11, however old you are in sixth grade. So our, the voices we hear from other people are really important. From that recital, I have never stopped singing. It, it, is a, it is a huge part of my life. It's like Jesus, Tyler, family singing. My whole life is singing. And that one person was the first person that said, hey, you're, this, you're good at this. And it changed my life. And he probably has no idea. And it's so important that we speak identity over people intentionally. Because we have no idea that, hey, you want the part in this play changes the trajectory of someone's life. We have no clue. But if we're going to speak identity over people, 
It's really important that we speak through God's perspective. Because this thing that we were designed for, hearing our identity spoken over us, is so often twisted into what it's not supposed to be. We hear the opposite spoken over us. And it's so important that we begin to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see ourselves and see other people with his eyes so we can see them properly. So what does that look like to see with heaven's perspective that feels very mystical? Um, Well, since it's Mother's Day, I think the most um, easy way to imagine seeing with heaven's perspective is seeing through a mother's eyes. So moms hold babies, you know, tiny helpless babies. They can literally do nothing for you. They've got nothing to offer you. Um, They sit there, they do nothing. And you know what a mom sees when they hold this? The most magnificent creature that has literally ever been. They think no one is as cute as their baby. And it's not a lie. They believe this. They think, is this the future president of the United States? Is this the next American idol? Like, this baby could be anything. Where is the evidence for that? Love is the evidence. And even though it seems the furthest thing possible, this crying baby would be the president, it's the most accurate picture because the mom is seeing them with love. And love paints the most accurate picture of who we really are, even if it seems like the farthest thing from the truth. And what about walking? None of us start walking. When Juno and Sunny, this is my oldest, I'm sure we did it for you guys too, started walking. So what is the first sign of walking? Does anyone crawling okay I'm gonna take it back our family is like really big we're like everyone's fan club so if you're in the family I remember when Juno and Sunny started like attempting to turn over and we were like they're gonna do it they're gonna walk any day now um like they can't even turn over and we are freaking out over what they what they're doing but that doesn't look anything like walking how do we know that's the first sign because we've seen it before. It doesn't look like walking, but because our parents, who normally have 20 to 30 years of experience on us, they have a perspective the baby doesn't have. The baby sits there frustrated, wondering why it can't do all the things the other humans do. Why can't they do it? They'll never be. And the mom just knows, don't worry, you'll get there. Turning is the part of walking. Falling is a part of walking. You're going to get there. And if parents with 20 to 30 years of experience on us have that kind of perspective, imagine what kind of clear perspective God has with eternity under his belt. That's what heaven's perspective is. He can see you clearer than anybody. And parents do this for us in every single season of our lives. And that, remember your first heartbreak? You are devastated. You will never recover, ever, ever. Life will never be the same. And your parents try to tell you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And you know what we do? We do not believe them. They don't get it. They have never loved this deeply, ever. So how could they know we'll be okay? They don't have a clue. But then time passes, and we are okay. How did they know that? Because they have years of experience that gives them perspective. God literally stands outside of time in your life. He's been in existence for all eternity, yet it's so hard for us to trust him 
when he says something about us that doesn't seem true. Our parents say, you'll be okay. No, we won't. Then we are. God says, you have an amazing destiny. No, I don't. I'm, I'm normal. But he is right about us all the time. And it's time to believe him. So when you start hearing these things about yourself that we're about to talk about, and you just think it's not true, there's so much evidence to prove otherwise, I just want you to remember that parent perspective. Just such a small version of it. And even if you're not a parent, you have plenty of things you've learned that people younger than you haven't learned yet. And we, no matter how crazy it seems, no matter how outlandish it seems, we've seen it before, so we know how it turns out. Well, I was preparing for this, and it's another baby metaphor. It's Mother's Day, so I feel like it was appropriate. I was imagining, what if babies only practiced walking in private? Like they would just lay all day and study the other humans. And then they would like take notes in their mind, never trying in public. And then as soon as their parents put them in the crib and closed the door, they would spring into action. And every time they tried, they would discover, oh, again, I can't. I thought I, thought I had it, but I can't do it. I'm not like the other humans. I wonder if they would ever learn to walk if they didn't try it in front of other people. Would babies ever believe they had the ability to even learn to walk if they weren't surrounded by people who were certain they could? We so often have moments with God or hear an inspiring or convicting message and we go home and we try to align ourselves with that truth and that identity in private. So afraid we won't live up to our own expectations. So afraid of failing. So we make sure we try in private. So if we don't do it like we wanted, we're the only ones who know. But how many times are we missing out on what we could be because we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable in front of the very people who could assure us we were on our way, who could assure us that this is the first part of walking, who could assure us we're doing way better than we think we are. We need each other if we're ever going to live out our identity in its fullness. So seeing with heaven's perspective allows us to see things like they really are. And oftentimes it's not what they look like on the surface. Second Corinthians 5, 16 through 19 says, Now if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new person. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. So from now on, this is my favorite part. We refuse to evaluate people merely by their outward appearance. For that's how we once viewed the anointed one. But no longer do we see Jesus with limited human insight. So many people saw Jesus and saw a carpenter. And they were so wrong. And our human perspective is just often wrong, more often than not. And we think we have all the evidence, we're ready to pronounce judgment on others, but... I think the most common is we're ready to pronounce it on ourselves. And we get into a really tricky situation with ourselves because then we're really sure we have all the evidence. We think we know our motives. We think we know we should know better. We think we've had enough times to get this right and we are ready to make a judgment on us. But I want to show you a few times in the Bible where our ideas were very different from God's. 
Let's start with Moses. A murderer with a speech impediment. God's perspective. A revolutionary releaser of captives. Who would be the ambassador for the people. David. A murderer and an adulterer. God's perspective. He was a man after God's own heart. That's one I really think we would not believe unless God explicitly wrote it out for us. There's so much stacked against David. You couldn't, you couldn't convince us unless God told us. Jesus, man's perspective, he was just a teen pregnancy. God's perspective, he was the promised Messiah and savior of the world wrapped up in a baby. Goliath, man's perspective, he was an undefeatable foe. God's perspective, He'll be conquered with a teenager and some rocks. Peter, he was impulsive and erratic, going around cutting off people's ears. God's perspective, he was steady. Steady rock he'd build his church on. Noah, a religious lunatic. God's perspective, he was righteous and obedient and the only one to be found. I even told this to Sheridan. I've, I feel like I learned this when I was in Bible college a long time ago. But that... Ran, like how crazy Noah sounded. We don't really put this into context. At that time on the earth, it had never rained before. Water sprang up from the ground. So when he's telling people, God told me there's going to be a flood, they have no context for that. He sounds like a complete lunatic. So for him to take God at his word that something's going to happen that he's never seen before and then go around and tell the whole world. I mean, Noah was very bold. Esther, man's perspective, he was a, she was a contestant for The Bachelor on steroids. Chris Ballatin spoke a message about this the other day about Esther, and he was like, I really don't understand everyone's fascination with naming their children Esther. And he was like, no offense to everyone who's named Esther. But Esther was really a, in a contest for who was the most beautiful and who was the best lover. In competition for months. But God is just that good at redeeming. So where we see that, God sees a savior of an entire people group. Mary Magdalene, man's perspective, she's a frivolous prostitute wasting years worth of wages. God's perspective, the only one in the room who saw Jesus' true worth. Paul, he was a Jewish crusader, murderer of Christians. God's perspective, he's an apostle, an evangelist to the Gentiles. He'll write nearly half of the New Testament. And I kind of want to just hang out with Paul here for a second. We love hearing that story. Like, wow, Paul was this and now he's this. So he goes from murdering Christians, like traveling around to make this happen, to one encounter with the Lord I serve in Jesus with my whole heart, and I will do it till the day I die. And that's beautiful. But what we don't think about is, what did it cost Paul to take on the new identity God had for him? What did it cost him to become who God said he was? How many people do you think thought Paul was a total fraud? Like, this cannot be real. This is too much of a change. This is fake. He's doing it for publicity. Um, this, this isn't real. I'll never believe it. How many people thought, okay, maybe he's changed. 
but here's how, here's how it's going to go down. He needs to go into seclusion for a minimum of 10 years to prove he's sorry. And then when he comes out, if God will have it, he can have a very, very quiet and small ministry. Very small. How much of an idiot did he look like changing his mind? He was so public about his ideas. Like he, I mean, we've already talked about it. He was so public. And then he had to change his mind. If he was going to take on his God identity, it couldn't be a private thing that he changed his mind. It had to be a public thing. How embarrassing do you think that was? But counting all these costs and more, once Paul heard God's voice, he decided to take what Jesus wanted to give him. He chose to take on his God-given identity and walk in it, no matter how outlandish, far-fetched, or fake it looked to people on the outside. And this might be where you are today, thinking of how stupid you'll look if you decide to believe who God says you are. What will people think if the promiscuous one chooses to believe they're pure? What will people think if a liar chooses to take on the identity of righteous? What will people think if a thief takes on the identity of trustworthy? The truth is the identity God has for us is free, but it does cost us something. And most of the time it's our pride because it takes humility to take God at his word. It's really, in, uh, when you take on this identity, it's going to be offensive to some people, including your own mind, to believe what God says about you. And the reason that is, is because grace is offensive by nature. We get what we do not earn. It's not fair. It's offensive to us. So say you are that liar, and then you get to say, I'm a truth teller, because that's who God says that I am. That's offensive to our minds. Like Wendy, he says, say you're an author. Well, I'm not. I haven't written any books. But he stands outside of time and sees the books. So you can keep hanging your head and paying a penance for all the wrong you've done if you want to. Keep punishing yourself, paying your dues. But who are you paying? Jesus already paid the price. And what exactly can you afford that Jesus' blood could not? Do you owe the world a shame countenance to prove you feel bad for what you've done, you've really changed, you know it was bad? And, or do you owe Jesus the joy of seeing him get everything he paid for in your life? You need to stop putting restrictions on your future by creating your identity from your past. That's not who you are. That's just what you've done. Colossians 1 says, And by the blood of his cross, everything in heaven and earth is brought back to himself. Back to its original intent. Restored to innocence again. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Bill Johnson, and I have referenced this for, I think, the past two years. And it says, If God and I disagree about something... God's not wrong. So when we go through and God says something about us that we don't agree with, well, God's not wrong. So if you say you're stained and he says you're spotless, who's right? If you say you're impure and he says you're holy, who's right? 
If you say you're an imposter and he says you're sincere, who's right? If you say you're stupid and he says you have the mind of Christ, who's right? And if you say you're ordinary and he says that you're destined to do greater things than even Jesus Christ himself, who is right? So we're going to move into an activation.